You can't keep using tools of oppression and expect to raise free people. I am Akila S. Richards, and you are rocking with a community of Black folks, Indigenous folks, and other people of color immersed or interested in self-directed education. Tune in weekly for insights and strategies from unschoolers, de-schoolers, social justice organizers, co-op and nonprofit founders, recovering public and private school teachers and professors, and believers in lifelong decolonized learning. Like what you're hearing? Head over to RaisingFreePeople.com for more than 100 episodes of Deep Dope Dialogue to fuel your education liberation. So I am sitting in a rental car parked uh, along the side of our Airbnb in Santa Monica, California, not too far from Santa Monica Beach and the Santa Monica Boulevard, where in 2011, I think, I was in LA for the first time for Blogging While Brown, which was a really good conference that was for black and brown bloggers, as the name implies. I remember that's the first time I met Lovey Ajayi, and I think Kim Coles was at that conference. If you don't know who that is, oh my God, did you not watch Living Single? What is happening? (laughs) Which is quite possible because we have listeners from other parts of the world besides the U.S. and some of the Caribbean. So Living Single was a very popular sitcom that centered some Black folks, which was nice to see. And it was Queen Latifah, shout out to the Queen, hip-hop's finest, longtime hip-hop artist. She eventually went into acting and all these things. And she had Living Single, which was a really dope show. The concept around the show, the actors, it was light, easy comedy. So Kim Cole's character is really one that held its own in terms of the way that she used her beautiful, simple, easygoing, loving way to navigate the world and, you know, how that played out in her circle with her sister friends and her guy, Obi. Anywho, that was the first place that I met Kim Coles and I also met Lovey there and my good friend Takia and I did a workshop there. One of the things about that experience was that when I came to LA in 2011, it was financially a very rough time for Chris and me. I went, it was just me. I came here for the conference and we had like no money. I remember I had like maybe $25 to my name for the trip. And then Chris was going to get paid for a project like the day after I got there. And so the day after that, he would be able to send like 75 bucks towards my trip. Because even back then with very little resources in comparison to the resources that we have now, even back then, I knew that I needed to develop real community around what I was passionate about. 
And so it meant that we would willingly sacrifice financially, right? Sacrifice financial comfort, I'm using air quotes, the financial comfort of our regular good jobs to do a different type of work in the world. And so when I came to LA for Blogging Wild Brown and we finished our presentation to Kia and I, and it went really well, and Takia was going to hang with some folks and I didn't want to do that. I was like, all right, we shared a taxi and the taxi dropped me off on the beach, the Santa Monica Pier Boulevard. And I remember using $12 to rent a bike for an hour for like eight bucks and then get a sandwich and some fries for four bucks. And I just rode the strip and ate my sandwich and my fries and forced myself to be in appreciation of all the good things that were happening amid all the financial strain and uncertainty. So now coming back here years later with my whole family, living not far from this beautiful beach where I was able to do that meditation of being present with what was good, it feels really special. It feels really special to be back here with the fam, showing the girls where I was riding my bike, reminding Chris about that time, remembering the benefits of tenacity and the blessings of community to be able to turn what we are passionate about into the thing that also sustains us, that allows us to rent a car for a few days or rent a house in a city we like and be in community with other people who are committed to raising free people because we have some luncheons and dinners and sessions scheduled here. Some have happened and some are still scheduled to happen this month. This is August of 2019 that I'm recording this. And just being able to do all of this has really been beautiful and it's been important for me to remember my old story as part of my de-schooling process, as part of normalizing the story that's emerging now. And so as I sit in this car recording this episode, after not recording an episode last week, what I want to focus on or touch on in this short episode is de-schooling. De-schooling is essentially recognizing and moving away from the patterns and habits and beliefs that you took on unconsciously, things that are rooted in the fears and baggage of the people who raised you or helped to raise you, de-schooling, moving away from, shifting away from the ways that you developed of being that were about surviving something, recognizing those things as potentially an old story and therefore doing the work, asking yourself the questions, putting yourself in the community or communities that allow you to develop new patterns, new habits around things that are important to you, like the ways that you show up as a mother or a father, like the way that you show up as a partner, whether that's romantically or business-wise. For many of us who end up at this intersection of this podcast, <laughs> for whatever reasons we come here, 
one of the most recurring or one of the strongest threads is the de-schooling journey. We relate to what it means to break old patterns, old cycles, old agreements, to look at old stories in our lives and to be really deliberate about not bringing those old stories into our new way or into the way that we want to normalize. And so having been in California since the early part of this month, around the 8th, yeah, because we came here for the Homeschooling Association of California's annual conference, HSC, being here has really been a beautiful set of lessons in hearing and witnessing other people's de-schooling processes and as well as my own, watching the evolution of that. And I'm just going to share a few of my observations and insights because that's what I feel called to do. I didn't record an episode last week once again because I needed to really take care of myself. And even though I have some episodes in the can already recorded, I just need to do the intro and outro. I decided not to share them, but instead to pause. I will be talking a lot more about the power of the pause as part of my own de-schooling process, slowing down, as I mentioned in the last episode with the molasses sessions, but also pausing the necessity of that in this work when you are being deliberate about raising free people, including yourself. Sometimes it's not enough to slow down. Sometimes you have to pause. You have to stop temporarily so that you can process things, so that you can go past your initial reaction to someone's statement and dive deeper into what triggered you about the statement and connecting that to other aspects of what you believe or what you've done so that you can disrupt the patterns about yourself and your choices that are no longer working for you. The things that now that you see that you are in a community of people raising free people, whether that's a community of three or 13 or 33, you are seeing how some of your old habits or some of other people's habits do not work well for a communal space where everybody feels free and that freedom isn't getting in the way of other people's freedom. Those intersections bring us to our de-schooling journeys and to pause, right, to stop temporarily is oftentimes what we need to do in order to allow the work to shift us. And one of the ways that I recognize an opportunity for us doing this work to really lean into our de-schooling is when we look at young people that we think are good examples of self-directed education or unschooling or raising free people. And I say that because this past month, Marley and I have been doing a lot of co-facilitating, either directly because we're brought in to do a specific workshop or because the conversation just led to a flow where she and I were just sharing insights. And it ended up being like a mad question asking session <laughs> with Marley and me being the people being asked a lot of the questions, particularly Marley. So that's happened a lot this month. 
So what's been really present for me with that is seeing the way that it's so easy for adults to say, yeah, man, she's such a great example of successful unschooling. And it's so easy for me to take that in like, yeah, mm -hmm, she is, and smile, and to not recognize that as schoolish, right? Seeing Marley specifically as a good example, as a good proof point, speaks to the need to prove that this thing works. That's something to question. It doesn't mean it's always wrong to do that or bad to do that. But it's worth questioning because sometimes the reasoning behind us proving it goes against the very thing that we believe. Because if we believe that learning and education and confident autonomy are not standardized things that look the same for everybody, then if we look at a kid who is extroverted and seems comfortable and can articulate things around social justice work and equitable spaces. And we say, yes, this is the checklist for what is successful. Look, other people could see this and now they will want to unschool too. That inherently makes her way of being better than another way of being. I think about Sage, our other daughter, who is not an extrovert, who can also articulate important things, you know, that speak to things in the world that we're, a lot of us are interested in, but she doesn't do it in the same way that Marley does. If we put up one type of kid in this work of unschooling, then we leave out all of the other possible ways that brilliance and things that should be celebrated and explored and amplified, we leave out the other ways that those things happen. Because a lot of why we like Marley's way in particular is because those ways translate really beautifully into school. Be assertive, speak up, say the things right, articulate it this way. These are all things that are totally fine. They're wonderful, but they're just one way of being. We've done agile learning facilitator trainings where Marley said things and adults were able to really connect with it in ways that they couldn't do it if me as another adult was saying it, right? And then Sage would say something and a lot of people would connect to that too in a very different way. And then there are lots of children that I meet in all these different communities that we're invited into that are a lot like Sage or not like Marley or Sage at all and should also be amplified in terms of their way and their voices in this movement. Because if we pick ways of being and, and herald those as good and right and worthy of sharing, then we're not any different than the schoolish idea that these particular sets of traits are good and that everybody needs to fit into that. You get me? Yeah. So that's something I recognize. So if you meet me in person <laughs> and you say something to me about Marley being articulate or whatever, and I give you a funny face, that's what I'm processing. I'm processing the idea of accepting what you're saying and also recognizing that we're still in so many ways tethered to specific ideas of what is good and right and true 
in ways that make schoolishness really hard to disrupt and to move away from. Yeah. The other thing that's been really present for me this month around de-schooling is what I touched on at the beginning of this episode about the power and importance and necessity of the pause because it allows us to process things, right? It allows us to become better witnesses because we're not trying to change a person's behavior all the time, right? Some What we're trying to do is observe what's happening and seeing what we can shift about ourselves and our contribution to our environment and that relationship that will invite change in the other person where we see it necessary, right? So for example, Sage has an interest in art in various forms, costume design, drawing, freehand, digital art, writing as an art form, script writing in particular, so designing characters and writing for those characters, all these different forms of art. And as I observe her practice over the years since we've been unschooling and we started out homeschooling and then learned over time that really we were in the way and really embraced unschooling as a result of being able to witness Marley and Sage thrive, the less involved we got in trying to control what their learning practices looked like. So she has all of these interests in art, but when we're in different cities and we're bringing her options for classes that she can take or offering her resources to look into options for different things that she can do, she's not responsive to that. She's like, oh, I didn't find a class or I don't really like doing this in spaces with other people or this one seemed like a good idea, but I'd rather do it online. And, and so my schoolish mind has been so stuck on trying to figure out how to get her to take advantage of all the opportunities. Marley does it. She takes dance classes all over and is willing to take a writing class here and da 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 da. And so I need for Sage to figure out what that looks like for her, as opposed to witnessing, paying attention to what she's doing, not what she's not doing, but what she's actually doing. And to see that she loves like Skillshare and she loves being able to upload her art sped up so other people can learn from it the way she learns from other artists. She enjoys going to fabric stores because you're not necessarily there with a group of people, but you're engaging around something you're interested in. When I'm not slowing down or just pausing to pay attention to what's actually happening as unschooled as we are in many ways, or as I am in many ways, I can still fall back on trying to standardize, essentially, Sage's way to what makes sense for me as someone who spent years in school. So if I'm not careful, if I'm not making the time to say, okay, instead of me looking up classes, let me sit with her, if that's cool with her, and get into her world a little bit and see what she's doing. When she comes up to me to talk to me about some fun fact about a random animal, <laughs> instead of just being like, okay, honey, 
like really actually let the conversation continue because when I do that, when I pause from whatever I'm doing or thinking to do that, then the conversation like every time branches out into something else that gives me another glimpse into all of the things that she's learning and all of the ways that she's engaging that don't look anything like what I would have thought or what I would have proposed. But it's richer even than anything that I would have proposed because she's in the world of art and is finding people and spaces where that's happening in ways that inspire her and cause her to turn a curiosity into a course of study because now she's dedicating hours per day to practicing a thing that she saw someone do or to find where this thing is happening so we can observe it because she doesn't want to do it there. She wants to do it at home because that's her way, right? Like this is how an unschooling family can either still be schoolish to say, well, yeah, you can choose whatever you want, but you got to take a class at this thing or you can be more de-schooled about it to recognize your own bias and your own limited perspective on what a learning process looks like. And so you would trust, instead of trying to control the environment or get frustrated about what she's not doing for us, it shifted over into me being able to trust that she knows she has resources around her to pursue her interests in a variety of ways and that I can present something to her as an opportunity and it not feel like an opportunity to her and that that's okay because there are other things that do feel like opportunities to her that she will trust me to present to me and that I can do something with that when that's necessary and that I don't have to be the driver of that all the time because she's in charge of her learning and that any sense that I have that I'm not doing enough or any sense that Chris has that he's not doing enough that that is almost always rooted in how we've been systemically groomed and marketed to as parents, that it's not actually based in the truth that we're not doing enough. These realizations can only happen in ways that create change in your life when you make space to pause, to process the shit, to not be reading five different parenting books at the same time and taking copious notes, but not changing any actual behavior long-term because you're so busy seeking and searching and finding the right person that you're not pausing enough to allow what you're observing and learning and researching to come together in ways that you can process it and keep the bits that make sense for you and your relationships and practice some bits that you might discover are good, even though they felt like they weren't, or vice versa. This work of de-schooling calls for space. It calls for you to figure out, as busy as you are, how to etch out time in your life to process the things that you are observing as a person who identifies as a de-schooler or a person in de-schooling mode, or a person who sees themselves as one who is de-schooling. You have to etch out time to process and to pause. Because without the processing, without the pause, there's going to be no pivot 
no disruptive pivot away from something oppressive, away from something schoolish, away from something that is not about liberation. You can't make that pivot to a trust-based relationship if you're not etching out the time to pause. So I encourage you to look at what it would mean to have 30 minutes most days that are just dedicated to you being with a thought past a quick, huh, I noticed my kid did this, or huh, I noticed this pissed me off, or huh, not right before bed, not right before you leave the house in the morning right quick, like 30 good minutes, where can you take that time to start to be with something that keeps showing up for you that you keep feeling like you ain't got enough time to be with, to work through? Start there, build that up, knowing that you are supported in your de-schooling journey by me, by other people who are on their own de-schooling journey. We're listening to podcasts like this together. We're reading the same sorts of materials. We are having the same sorts of thoughts. We're feeling crazy together. We're angry together. We're inspired together. You're not alone. And if you can trust that you're not alone, what can you start doing to turn that feeling of not aloneness into action in your life by making time to pause and to process more often? All right. Thanks for listening. I will catch you next week. Much love.